0: You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, where we'll be continuing on our study in the book of Luke. And as you flip there, I want you to think about how, sorry, I'm still flipping there. If you follow any type of sport, you know that in pretty much every sport, there's always been this ever-present debate going on of who is the greatest player of all time. I like the sport basketball, so the debate that I'm often hearing is, is Michael Jordan or is LeBron James the greatest basketball player of all time? Or even if sports are not your thing, we, we have this tendency to rank everything that we come across. Top 10 places to live, best Star Wars movie, most successful presidents, top... Um, Top superfoods to, to enhance your health. I know one that probably half of the congregation has looked up here. Top board games of all time. See, we have this, this tendency to rank things from greatest to the least. And it's a tendency that's always existed. You know, it's not just a modern thing. The disciples in Matthew 18 come up to the Lord Jesus Christ and say to him, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's always been a, a thing where we desire to rank the things that are before us. And it's, it's not necessarily something that is wrong. You know, to want to know who, what, or, or where is the greatest. Because if we, if we know that thing which is the greatest, then we are able to strive towards it. For example, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing his letter to the First Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13 says, So now faith... Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And so in saying that, in giving us that that ranking, Paul is indicating to us that we should strive especially for that attribute of love because it is the greatest. Now, another reason that it, it can't be wrong to rank things from greatest to least is because Jesus himself is going to do exactly that in our passage this morning. Jesus is going to give us his own greatness ranking. Now, why is that important to us? Well, see, if we want to be seen as great in the eyes of the Lord, we should pay careful attention to what Jesus uses as his criteria for greatness. See, different people have different ideas of greatness, you know, you've probably all heard of Alexander the Great. Now in the world's eyes, maybe he was great. He was the fastest man to conquer the known world, sweeping through at an unprecedented rate. But in, in God's eyes, I mean, Alexander was idolatrous, he was immoral, he was a murderer, and he was a God-hater. He was spending eternity in hell. And so the world's standards of what makes someone great, and even if, if we admit our own standards of, of what we see as greatness, are often different than those of God's. And so this morning's passage is going to help us orient ourselves in the proper direction, seeking greatness as God has defined it. And so I'll read for us Luke chapter 7 verses 24 to 30, our passage this morning. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he." When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Today's sermon is quite simple. We have two points that we're going to look at. First is the greatness of John. And second is the greatness of those in the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is telling us this in part that we should strive after this type of greatness. See, so you, you might think it's wrong. You know, why should I strive to be great? Is that somehow how prideful, prideful in my life? Well, You see, we strive for greatness not as a means of gaining Glory for ourselves or gaining the approval and praises of man, getting our names on this, you know, top ten greatest Christians of all time. But we pursue greatness because we desire to glorify God and to receive the approval and commendation of God. Just like a, a young child just loves to, to make their parents proud of them. We too should, should strive after these things that are going to make our Father who is in heaven proud of us. Those are, we, we, we want to strive after those things where God is going to look at our life, He's going to look at our actions, and on that day He's going to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. That is, that is the greatness that we are to strive after. And so as we go through here now what makes someone great, you should be thinking in your mind, I want to be like that. I want to be like the example that is laid out here. If Jesus thinks, you know, that thing is great, then that's the thing I am going to strive as hard as I can after. Even if it means this this harder and more difficult road that is before me. And so first then, our, our first point is the greatness of John. If you skip in this passage all the way down to verse 28... Jesus says something that is quite an extraordinary statement regarding John the Baptist. He says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. None is greater than John. Now what sparked Jesus saying these things about John? Well, if you remember... Uh, a couple verses back in the passage that just preceded this, John had just sent his disciples to go uh, to Jesus to ask him a very important question. And that question was, are you the one to come or should we look for another? You see, John wasn't quite sure if if Jesus was the Messiah. He wasn't, Jesus wasn't fulfilling his expectations regarding the Messiah. He wasn't bringing this judgment and liberation that he had expected. And all of that led John to a place of doubt in his life. You know, maybe he had gotten things wrong about Jesus being the Messiah. But then we also saw last week that, that Jesus, you know, he doesn't blast John, he doesn't reprimand John because of his doubting, but instead he goes and he meets him at his place of doubt. And he reassures John that he is, in fact, the Messiah and that John can be confident in that. And then our passage kind of picks up as, as John's disciples then are going and leaving and bringing this message back to, to John to tell him the good news. And then Jesus, in verse 24, he turns around and he starts to speak to the crowd about John. And, and the reason I think that he, he does that is because these people have just heard this conversation that's happening. They might be tempted to look down upon John I mean, John is doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, what kind of Christian doubts in their life? What kind of of prophet would not recognize the Messiah that is to come? And so, Jesus is going to correct any type of false thoughts that might be arising in the people's head regarding John. See, John might be slandered, by other people. John might be a man who has his enemies. We know that he did, clearly. He's sitting in jail because he spoke up against King Herod. John's enemies might be numerous. You know, the religious leaders didn't like him. The Pharisees didn't like him. But one thing I think we can always be confident in is that, that Jesus always knows our, our true character. You know, what people think about us isn't the final say. You know, Jesus knows our heart. He knows our heart far more than anybody else does. And Jesus is going to correct these people's false views regarding John the Baptist. And so he defends him with one of the greatest compliments that anybody could ever receive out of the, words of, out of the mouth of Jesus, the words that John is the greatest born of a woman. See, John is not simply just great. John is the greatest If you imagine every single person from all of history lined up, there is John at the very front of the line as the greatest, the one who comes out on top. And you know, that's an impressive list to top. If you just look at, for example, the prophets, you've got some pretty big players in the line of the prophets. You know, guys like Isaiah, who wrote uh, the biggest, the, the, the most chaptered, Uh, book in the prophets, one that's often called the fifth gospel because of its beautiful revelation regarding the coming of the Savior, or you have guys like Daniel. I mean, the guy literally managed to to live in the heart of the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empire all the while preaching the good news of God and making his way through lion's dens and through um, the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Or what about Elijah? I just read last week. Elijah's showdown with the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where he totally shows them up, exercises great faith. Or even Jonah. And you know, talk if we're talking strictly a success parameter, I mean Jonah preaches a seven-word sermon, and the whole city falls down in repentance and sackcloth and ashes. So there's this, this, this great list of of people who have come before john and yet of all of these it is the rugged imprisoned wild man john the baptist who comes out on top and so we need to ask then what makes john so great what makes it so that john receives this commendation from jesus and i'm sure there's many reasons. That aren't mentioned in this passage, but the ones that we're gonna look at are, are two in particular. And that is the character of John, the character of John, and the calling of John. Those are the two reasons why Jesus says he is the greatest. And so, first, the character of John. Look at verse 25 and 26 again. What then did you go out to see? Or, sorry, starting in verse 24. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. See, the first reason that John is... Commended is because the type of man that he was, his character, and specifically his character in regards to his unwavering and uncompromising attitude toward the truth of God's word. Now, that phrase, a, a reed shaken in the wind, is referring to this in John's life. You see, John was out, he was preaching along the banks of the Jordan River so he could baptize in the Jordan River, and it was a place where. You know, when the wind blows, all of these reeds along the coast would would shift and sway as the wind came and passed them. What Jesus is saying is is that John, he's not like that. John is not a man who would be swayed and bent by the cultural winds and narratives that surrounded him. John was a, a firm man. John was a man of conviction. He was not as Ephesians 4 verse 14 says, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, or craftiness. He wouldn't be threatened by the governing authorities. He wouldn't change his message to fit in with the religious leaders. John was uncompromising when it came to the truth. And it is this type of men and women that our, and, and children that our church needs more of today. The church collectively needs more of today. People who are not going to compromise on the truth of God's word, no matter the consequences. Men and, and women who will live as people of conviction. See, as the, as the secular culture around us tries to, to mold us into its own image, as it tries to make us one of its loyal subjects who bow to its will in every area of our lives, we are called to stand. As John the Baptist and the saints before him and the saints after him have st- have, standed, have, have stood, we are to say, you know, we're not moving. You know, throw us into prison. Behead us. Throw us to the, to the lions. We are not moving. We are not compromising. Take the area of of marriage, for example. See, the enemy knows that God has designed marriage and that when marriages and families are strong, so is a society. When marriage and families are strong, so is a society. And so, if you're the devil, what is one of the things that you are going to attack? You are going to attack the institution that God has made, the institution of marriage, yeah, that's the Antichrist spirit of the age, to go after the family, to go after uh, husbands and wives. See, marriage in our, in our society is no longer a lifelong covenant. We have no fault divorce. You can get divorced for any reason that you want. Sex is no longer saved for the covenant of marriage. You need to try it before you buy it, as the saying goes. The one man and one woman for life is, is archaic and old-fashioned and a repression of our natural biological instincts. Now you, can, you can marry who you want, when you want, however many times you want, as long as it makes you happy. And children, well, children, they are just a, a burden to your happiness. You know, they're gonna get in the way of your success. And so pump yourself with every birth control on the market and make sure you know a good local abortionist. And if you do decide to have children, you know, wait till your career has has really developed first and taken off. Make sure you've got a, a nice house and and you've had your years of fun before your children come and ruin your life. You see, the culture is is all about war against God's institution of marriage and the family. And we need men and women and children like John the Baptist who are going to stand fast on these issues and not be swayed. See, there are, are many hills that Christians in the past have, have faced and they've said to themselves, this isn't a hill worth dying on. You know, this isn't a, a battle that I'm going to fight. This is not a gospel issue. But look what happens to a culture when you have no hills that you st- when you're waiting for the trinity to be the hill that you're going to die on we need to be men and women of conviction who will not be swayed by the culture and are going to stand fast on the truth of God's word no matter the cost now this doesn't mean that we are are prideful and stubborn doesn't mean that we're prideful and stubborn. We are to be a people who are constantly reformed by the Word of God, you know, changing our minds, changing our convictions when the Word of God is presented to us. And we're to hold our convictions with humility and express them as people who are humble. But, you know, if, if you truly are, if we truly are convinced of what God's Word says, we stand our ground. We're not, we're not shaken as reeds are shaken in the wind. So that's the first thing to note. Now, a second thing to note about John's character, and it's related to, to his uncompromising stance on God's word, is that he is a man who cared more about truth than he did about style. He cared more about truth than he did about style. See, John didn't live in fancy palaces or where soft clothing or preaching in temples and synagogues to the people. But he lived out in the wilderness. And he wore camel's fur and he ate locusts and honey. See, John didn't have his, his heart set on, on being one of the religious elite. He didn't have his heart set on being in the palace and, and rich and, and wearing this, this nice silk clothing. He valued truth more then he valued style. And there's a few things I think we can glean from that uh, for our lives today. First, collectively as a church, we need to be a church that values truth more than we value style. We don't want to be a church that elevates a, a style of ministry or programs or, or getting people in the door and bums in the seats more than we value truth. We don't want to be a church that sings weak worship songs because their production value is higher. We don't want to be a church where the pastor never challenges or convicts people because it might offend them. We want to be a church where we see success as as faithfulness to God's word, not the number of, of people in the pews or modern ministry strategies. And, it's not to say that some of those things are wrong. It's not to say that, that a church should not strive for, for being a, a relevant church. I mean, we don't want to hold on to traditions that are not necessary if they're going to scare people away. We should strive to be a church that is, is not seeker-friendly, but is friendly to seekers when they come in to our church. We want to be, be a church that isn't singing songs that someone who comes and is new. You know, has no idea because it's some, you know, sixteenth century Scottish hymn that one of our congregants found in their grandfather's Bible. You know, we want to be a church that is 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 open to, to those who are not part of our gathering, but even more than that, we want to be a church that values the truth of God's word more than anything else. So that's the first point of application. We need to be a church who strives for truth more than we strive for style. And the second point of application, you, know, you as an individual, me as an individual, we need to be someone who values truth above style. And you might ask, what would that look like? What would that look like, you know, that look like in, my, in my life? As I was thinking through maybe some practical examples, one that came to my mind is um, deciding not to watch certain TV shows, even if they have a great storyline or great acting or great production value, because it would compromise your morality. You know, standing on the truth more than standing on what is nice and what is good and what is valuable to the world. Or you know, as a child or a, a teenager or even an adult, you know, being sensitive about your friend group. If you have friends that they're just so much fun to hang out, you always have a good time, but... They cause you to waver in your stance on the truth. It doesn't matter if they are part of the cool crowd. It doesn't matter if they they make you look better to others around you. It's better to stand on the truth. Truth trumps style all the time. And we need to live that out. And so that's the reason John is called the greatest by Jesus. Because of his character. And specifically, his uncompromising obedience to the truth of God's word. And so that's the first characteristic of John that makes him great. Moving on to the second, you might be thinking to yourself, I mean, were not all the other prophets, also men, who stood upon the truth of God's word, who were uncompromising? Daniel, Jeremiah, Elijah, they all, they all stood their ground for the truth. So, so, how does this aspect of John make him out to be the greatest? Well, that leads to our second characteristic that made John great, and that is the calling of John. So, we have the character of John, now we have the calling of John. And look at verse 26 and 27. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So what these verses highlight to us is that John was no ordinary prophet. John was no ordinary prophet. John had a very special role to play in the story of redemption. And that role was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And as a result, that made him unique from all the other prophets that came before him. You see, all those prophets I had mentioned earlier, they spoke to the the people about the coming of the Messiah. But only one prophet announced that the Messiah had come. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The other prophets predicted the Messiah, but John announced that he had arrived. John was the, the setup man, He was the herald, He was the, the deputy to the sheriff. He was the one who, who came out on stage with the Messiah and said, "Everybody, look, The Messiah is here. the Messiah has come." See, John was special in the plan of God, and that's really what made John great. You know, even more than than this rock-solid character that he had. His special role as the one who introduced the Savior of the world, the image of the invisible God, the, the great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, is what sets John apart from others. And now some encouragement and application for us in that about John. Because guess what? We all, all of us sitting here, have the exact same opportunity to announce the words that John announced. In fact, you know, our message is one that's even greater and, and fuller, if that's a word, than, than John's message. We'll, we'll get to that later. The point is this. John was great because of his proclamation that the Messiah was here. And we can all be great for the exact same reason. Paul says in Romans 10, blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. Now ask yourself, do you actually believe that? Do you actually believe that the blessing of God, that the one who, whom God looks upon and says, he is blessed, she is blessed, is the person who preaches the good news? Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? And second question. How are you doing at that? That's what greatness is. Defined as. How are you doing at that? When's the the last time you've shared. Your faith. I know. That if this is the standard of what makes someone great. if, If this is what leads to the words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Then I've. I've failed. Have you? Have you failed in that? Well, it can change today. Repent and leave here as as, as John was, as a herald of the good news of Jesus Christ, announcing those very same words that John announced. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is here. So there you have it. Why is John the greatest person born of a woman? Because of his character and because of his calling. Two things that we should strive after if we truly want to be great in the eyes of the Lord. But, you might be saying, the passage doesn't end there. Because as we shall see, John's time at the the top of the all-time greatest list has actually come to an end. And who, might you ask, is, is the one who has surpassed him? Well, the answer is, is not what you might think it to be. Look at verse 28 again. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he Now what is Jesus meaning by this? He's just gone through and said all these reasons why John is so great. He says, John is the greatest born of woman. And then in the very next breath, he says, not so fast. Well, Jesus is saying, and it's quite extraordinary, that every believer who has lived after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, even the one who barely makes it in by the skin of his teeth, is actually greater than John the Baptist. Now it's important to note here that, that Jesus isn't talking anymore in terms of greatness in character and in calling. He's talking now in terms of greatness in, in knowledge and in privileges. See, with the dawning of the new covenant, a a floodgate of knowledge and blessings now flows to the people of God, unlike anything ever seen in the Old Covenant, which John was a part of. Essentially, Jesus is saying, even even the best that the old has to offer is nothing in comparison to the least that comes with the new. Think of it analogous to to technology. If you go back 50 years, and you look at the phones that they had back then, even the greatest phone of that era, though it was was wonderful and great for those who were in that era, it was, it was a piece of garbage. You know, it's, it's nothing in, in comparison to even the worst phone that comes out today. And the same is true with the coming of the new covenant, the coming of the kingdom of God. We have received knowledge and privileges that even, even John the Baptist never had. I think of 1 Peter 1 verses 10-12, it explains it well. It says, concerning this salvation, Peter's just gone on to, to talk about the glories of the salvation we have. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, not theirs, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so the prophets are searching. They're trying to figure out when is the time. And verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. See, in other words, the prophets, including John, they knew about the blessings of the new covenant and all the promises that came with that, but they themselves never got to experience it in its fullness. They, they longed for the things that we now have as believers under the new covenant. Now, now, you might be saying, okay, what are those things? Like, what is so great about the new covenant? Well, I'll just I'll give you a few the priesthood. The priesthood being abolished and all believers now being part of the priesthood of God. Or the Spirit. You know, the Spirit no longer dwelling in the temple, the Spirit no longer functioning to empower certain kings, individuals, and prophets, but the Spirit now dwelling in every single believer, empowering them all, from the slave girl to the elderly man for the mission of God. Or the incorporation of, of the Gentiles Into the people of God. Free access to the throne of God's grace and mercy without fear. The full and complete word of God in our hands. The Old and the New Testament in its fullness. Freedom from the law. And the condemnation of the law. And personal and intimate unity and relationship with Christ our Savior through faith. And that's just what I thought of on the spot. There is, there is so much more that comes as blessings to us that, that though the, the Old Testament believers experienced some of this in its, in its minute form, we now experience it in its fullness. These things were just longings for the most part for those who came before Christ. Things they looked forward to but never actually tasted. That's why the author of Hebrews 11 says, you know, these, that is all these, these great people of faith that he has just listed in that chapter, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with, the, with us would they be made perfect. And so, John was a great man because of his character. John was a great man because of his calling But the truth is that even even the child who knows and believes the message of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ possesses a, a key to religious knowledge and experience that the patriarchs and the prophets never enjoyed for themselves. That's why in verse 29 and 30 we see that the tax collectors and the sinners are rejoicing. Because they have believed John and his message about the Messiah. And are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And they're going to be considered great. Even though in their their culture and their society they're despised. They're the opposite of greatness. While it's the Pharisees and the lawyers who in their self-righteousness and in their desire to reject the plan of God and not embrace his new covenant... They are rejecting the blessings and the greatness that flows from being in union with Christ. And so practically, then what does does this declaration of all of our greatness by Jesus mean for us? I think quite simply, it's don't squander the privileges that you have. Don't squander the privileges that you have. You have the full revelation of God in your Bible. Don't neglect reading it. You have the the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Don't, Don't lose the fight to sin anymore. You have the message of the gospel and the power of salvation. Don't hide it under a lamp, just as it would be foolish for the son of, of a rich man to store away all of his money and to never use it and to perish with it or, or to go on, on useless endeavors and spend it on that, it would be a total waste of a life if we never took advantage of the glorious blessings and privileges that God has given us through Jesus Christ. You don't be like the servant in the parable of the talents who, who goes and receives his money and then never uses it you know, be like those other men, those other servants who received the talents of God and who used it to advance his kingdom. Go, multiply, use the knowledge and the blessings and the experience of God that is unique to us in this new covenant and make a difference for his kingdom. And so that's the challenge for all of us this morning. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Do you want to hear those words from the Lord Jesus Christ? Well done, good, and faithful servant. Well, then stop wasting what God has given you. Don't squander your inheritance, don't hide it away for no one to see. You are a child of the new covenant, you are a member of the kingdom of God. God has given you new life, a new heart. And a new spirit. And so don't waste it. Let me pray. Dear Lord. We thank you. That as we look at the example of John. We see a great man. But as we look at. The blessings that flow to us from the new covenant. We see an even greater God. An even greater God that has given us all these things that we do not deserve. All of these riches, all of these blessings, all of this knowledge of the full and complete revelation of God. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a people who do not squander that. That we would grab hold of of all of the privileges that you have given us. And that we would use them for fighting sin in our lives. We would use them for for serving others by the power of the Spirit, that we would use them for the proclamation of the gospel to Smith's Falls and beyond. And Lord, that we would would live lives where you would look upon us and you would say, I'm proud of you. You've done well. You didn't waste what I gave you. You went and you multiplied it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of God of my rest. May that be true of all of us, and may you strengthen us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.